This is Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Happy New Year. Thank you for joining us for our first episode of 2022. Thanks to you, we've had an exciting and successful 2021. We, of course, recently celebrated our 100th episode. We grew our audience all over the globe, and we're also very happy to have added a producer this year to our podcast team, which is a great help. Thank you, Mitch. And, of course, all of our team here as well. A lot goes into putting these episodes together, and having the team here to help me means a lot to me. And I think I can speak for all of us here on the pod. We do thoroughly enjoy doing it. And we are super excited about bringing you even more great guests and soaring content this year. Doing something a little different for this episode, we're going to be sharing several short soaring stories from all over the globe rather than have a featured guest pilot. But no worries, I think you're really going to enjoy them. And we will return with a new guest pilot on our next episode. Now, some of these stories are brand new. You've never heard them here on the podcast, while others you may have heard. But we hope you enjoy each and every one of them. It was in the French Alps, and normally mountain flying is a bit particular, as you know, but you have also different parts of the mountain which are uh, more or less difficult with their own aerology. And particularly, there was a zone near Briançon. There are 3,000 meters of uh, sailing. I can go there, and I can go further. Maybe I can train for my 500 maybe succeed doing 500 and in fact i went on the wrong place below the mountain and i was unable to recover a good lift and um, i went in a, in the place that other more experienced pilot knew you don't have to go i was against the on the on the wrong side of the of the wind i did not evaluate correctly the wind on the mountain, and I was on the wrong side of the valley, on the descending side of the valley, and all went very quickly. I went from being the king of the world, 500 meters, but the top of the mountain being very low, uh, below the mountain, looking at, the, at, the, at the, the top of the mountain, and I managed to find something between a, a very small airfield and to crash land more or less the glider there, but it was, a, it was a bit iffy. So I lose progressively all the glide path. Uh, you, you know, in mountain, you'd have very, in the French South Alp, you have very, very few airfield and field when you can land the glider. Even a very nice glider landing very shortly as well as three uh, I had this day. So you have to always be able to glide to one of the, the safe landing places, but you cannot choose one at the last at the last instant. Is what I, I want to say. Well, generally, to be in a position to land in a glider, it's it's a general thing. But here you have particular sport when you have to be sure you are able to join because on the other era you have just rock, river, bit of forest between the two, two sides of the, of the mountain. And here, what I've done is, uh, I said, well, it's okay. But I didn't mind the strong wind and the strong descent right there was on the part of the mountain I've been. And successfully, 
I lose of the possibility to join one of this era. And I was very low, with nothing theoretically possible to land, but I found something very narrow uh, between the mountain and the river. And at the time, I did not have the choice. I was something like 200 meters from the, from the ground, and I said, I have to do something. And my last chance is to attempt to land there. But when I arrived in short final, I decided not to increase the speed with respect to the speed of the, the wind I evaluated just because the field was so short. So I said, I have to carefully under my 90 kilometers short final speed, but no more because I don't have enough room. And what happened, it was very, very turbulent, as you may have uh, understood with what I told that day. And at the end, I probably tore on a, on a big uh, turbulent gust of wind. And so I probably stole at something like two, three meters. And so the glider uh, hit the ground and passed on the noise. And so the huge uh, brake, brake effect it has made me going forward. And, uh, and my, uh, one of the bones of my back was uh, pressed and broke a little bit. But it was not something very, very heavy. I was able to leave the glider. Someone on the ground told me, are you okay? I said, well, I think I'm not totally because when I breath, I feel a pain in the back. And so I went to the hospital and eventually my friend at the, uh, at the, the airport with my indication on the phone, find the, the field where I landed, came with the trailer and they put the glider back in the airfield. There was a little of um, unpassed uh, material under the under the seat with a few past of the of the structure it was not structural but with pasting again the seat on the fuselage was uh, just a one journey uh, work and then the, the glider flew again hello everyone happy new year 2022 thank you for spending time with us here at soaring the sky this past year we are so grateful for all of you and a special thank you to all of our guests that shared their stories and experiences to make 2021 a great year for Soaring the Sky. We're so excited about what's in store for 2022, and we are really looking forward to sharing the new episodes with all of you. May your new year be filled with sky-high adventures and good fortune. I was lined up to land at El Mirage Island, <clears throat> and I got over it, and there were car and motorcycle races going oh, on. Yeah. Uh -oh. And there were people zooming everywhere. Oh boy. So well, this isn't safe to land. So at the last minute, like maybe a 700 foot of AGL, there's a runway that used to belong to Ken Brock on the west end of the dry lake, a dirt runway out into the desert that kind of ends at the dry, start of the dry lake. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, I'll land there. There's no motorcycles there. So I turned and lined up. Everything was really cool until on short final I realized there's a wire strung across the threshold of the runway on two posts. This, this place had hangers, there were ultralights there. Who would string a wire? And so I had to decide, am I going over? A wire that only went between the poles? No, it went somewhere. It was oh, like it was, power. Oh, it was like a power line, okay. Uh, yeah, but it was a homemade one. Yeah. So I had to decide really quick to go under it or over it. Mm. And I went under it. Mm. I'd dive down, go under, and land. That was the most <laughs> exciting landing in that glider on a cross country. 
Just Soaring, the makers of the Glider Sim Pro Sailplane Simulator Cockpit, would like to congratulate German pilot Ben Fest for his recent victory in the first ever FAI-sanctioned aviation esports event in history, the Sailplane World Grand Prix, which Ben won after several days of exciting competition against some of the top Condor soaring pilots from around the world. If you are looking for a best-in-class dedicated sailplane simulator cockpit for Condor or Microsoft Flight Sim, look no further than the Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. Check them out at JustSoaring.com or at Just.Soaring on Instagram. It was to be a private visit, which was wonderful because Prince Charles could relax. The only media present was an official RAF photographer. Otherwise, yes, it was him, his private detective, and they arrived in, in the Prince's open-top Aston Martin with the Prince driving and the private detective relaxing on the back seat. So we welcomed him and, you know, the day went on. But the weather just was not there for to accomplish the primary mission, and that is to take him cross-country. Unfortunately, the, the weather really, really wasn't. It was dry, but it, it wasn't properly soarable at all. During the day, I did manage to get one thermal from fairly low altitude and you know we took that up to 3,000 feet so at least he got a little taste of what what it could be about but overall the weather was most certainly frustrating because I would have loved to have taken him cross-country I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the day we did uh, he, he's a very fine pilot he did most of the flying and he, he latched on to towing very quickly and I even had him flying aerobatics. And uh, he, he's also, yeah, he's a much misunderstood man. He's actually a really, really nice guy with a very good sense of humor. I remember one particular moment during the day when we were having our lunch break, we were going in to, to have that in, in what was normally uh, the gliding center briefing planning room. And it was all decked out with the finest silverware and white linen tablecloth, all of this. And I got to the doorway and I invited him to go ahead of me, of course. And he, he went in, had a quick look around and he turned around to me and said, uh, I suppose it's always like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, it, it, it was a great day. Uh, and uh, But yeah, just just somewhat frustrating that I couldn't show him what gliding was ultimately all about. Hey everybody, producer guy Mitch here, just wanting to wish you all a happy new year and thank you all for listening, for your ongoing financial support of the show, and for remembering to leave us a review on your pod app of choice. It's still early in 2022, but we've already got several really compelling and interesting guests lined up and think you're going to see the show continue to grow and keep trying out new ways and formats to bring you soaring related content from around the world. So thanks again, and well, back to work here, prepping content for the next episode. Happy New Year. Maybe the strangest thing or the strangest feeling I had was when I saw my, uh, my friend on a parachute in the middle of a huge thermal with nearly 30 gliders as he had to, like, bumped out of the glider as there was a crash, like, mid-air. So that was that was probably the strangest thing I've ever seen, the most scariest one. And yeah, it was really strange because I felt relief that he's okay, but I was scared 
uh, or worried about him at the same time because I could imagine what things came to his mind. Like, oh my God, what is happening? I'm on a parachute in the middle of the thermal. And there were those 30, 30 more gliders uh, that were like turning around him. So I was afraid that somebody doesn't didn't really see him. So yeah, strangest and the most scariest thing I've ever seen and really don't want to see that ever again. <laughs> wow, did everyone made it okay then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the other guy... He was flying Yantar, so basically the Yantar uh, glider was all okay, only the canopy was uh, crashed a bit. So this guy made it to a nearby airfield to land somewhere safe. And my friend on the parachute landed after a few minutes because there was a really strong thermal uh, where he was uh, in the, on a parachute. So it took some time. And the other friend uh, who was in the team just landed as he was the lowest one um, in the thermal. He landed and checked if he's okay. So it, it was 100 kilometers away from uh, the origin airfield of the of the task. So it was really the toughest uh, 100 kilometers we flew back home. But yeah, I was really glad the other friend who landed near our friend, he told him that it would be really great if he says something in the radio. So we heard him. I'm okay. Just fly home. See you, see, see you in the evening. And yeah, that was it. So everyone made it okay at last. Aerox, the number one in portable and engineered aviation oxygen systems, your source for FAA-approved oxygen masks and portable oxygen systems, and now introducing the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag portable oxygen system. Small, lightweight, and simple to use, the Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. So remember, our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. Hi, everyone. Sergio from Sorry Master here. The first ever crossing of the Andes with an aircraft took place in 1918, when the Chilean Dagoberto Godoy flew from Santiago, Chile, to Mendoza, Argentina, in a Bristol M1C a World War I British monoplane. But crossing the Andes has never been an easy task, let alone in a glider through the highest section of that mountain chain. Williamson, then 39 years old, was a retired Chilean Air Force officer and at the time he was working for an insurance company. He used to fly at the Club de Planeadores de Santiago and had been analyzing possible routes to carry out a Santiago-Mendoza flight in a sailplane. With that goal in mind, Williamson took off solo by 13.10 Santiago local time in a Blanick L-13. Williamson's L-13, tail number Charlie Charlie Kilo 7 Whiskey, had a radio but it was not operational. Not that Williamson needed one, but with the terrain ahead, any communication would hardly be received by anyone. However, all sailplane instruments were in order. The airspeed indicator, altimeter, variometer, a turn bank, a compass, clock, and an oxygen bottle with enough oxygen for 30 minutes. In 1964, way before the GPS era, 
Williamson only had a map at hand for navigation. Santiago conditions were southeasterly 25 knot wind, 12 degrees Celsius, and a 4 8 cloud coverage. The night before, it had snowed in the mountains and the temperature was low. This would definitely affect thermal intensity, but the conditions were good for Wade. The tow plane released Williamson at 400 meters AGL and it didn't take long for him to climb in thermals. In a later interview and in his own words, until reaching the Kalina woods, the trip was normal. At that point, I found some thermals that allowed me to gain some few meters and proceed eastwards, always climbing, little by little, until reaching 3,000 meters AGL. He found himself over the historic Chacabuco Valley. In Chacabuco, he found several cumulus clouds in which he climbed inside them, thermally and under instrumental flight conditions, and in that way, he climbed between the peaks, reaching 4,000 meters from cloud to cloud. After struggling with strong updrafts and downdrafts typical of mountain flying, he managed to reach the Christ the Redeemer landmark, a decision point. He either committed for the next three hours to reach Mendoza or that was the last chance to return. While climbing a wave, he spent the next 20 minutes deciding and weighing the conditions and Williamson decided to go. He would go to Mendoza, but now he had to face two difficulties, cold and oxygen. Waves over that particular point of the Andes can reach altitudes of more than 20,000 feet and the outside temperature reached minus 16 Celsius, or 3 degrees Fahrenheit. He had 30 minutes of oxygen on board, which had to be carefully managed. In his own words, when the headache, nausea, and the cold made me want to leave that glider, this served me as an indicator to turn on the oxygen for 30 seconds. This procedure of dealing with hypoxia symptoms is extremely dangerous, but the oxygen systems back then did not have the demand controllers we have nowadays, which can save a lot of oxygen. But it was enough for Williamson to keep on going. During the flight, Williamson had to deal with strong rotors and downdrafts as he passed under each of the lenticular clouds. Sometimes he had to manage height losses by going 30 kilometers backwards to climb under the lenticular cloud he had just left to be able to climb up again and keep on going. Even with the cold, Williamson reported that he was sweating from so much tension. The only alternative in that part of the end is, would be the Ospalata town, but it was out of reach. In reality, any emergency landing in that region back then had zero chances of survival. In his own words, with luck, after passing a mountain range, I found 0.5 meters per second, which I used every meter to reach Uspalata. From there, Williamson re-entered the canyon of the Mendoza River on the way to Potrerichos, from where he would have to make the last great height gain to cross the Plata region. This part of the flight was less difficult. By 18.50 p.m., the silhouette of Mendoza appeared over the horizon. In his own words, that moment was very emotional for me. From there, I went directly to El Plumerisho Airport, where I landed after a 5-hour, 15-minute flight. 
in which I reached a maximum altitude of 18,300 feet. After landing, Argentine authorities were stunned when they saw Williamson's barogram and the Chilean glider on Argentine soil. Williamson, who took off as an ordinary man, had put his name in aeronautical history. Even though he was not used to the spotlights, he was highly honored by the Argentine Air Force and Lan Chile, a famous Chilean airline of that time, upon learning of the feat, sent an airplane with his family, journalists, and club colleagues to bring Williamson and the Blanick back to Santiago. Williamson was honored by several Chilean authorities. He had open car parades in Santiago and he was awarded with the 1968 Otto Leontal Medal by the International Aeronautical Federation, the FAI. The glider is now displayed at the Chilean Air Force Museum in Los Cerichos, and in June 2014, Williamson passed away. He was 88 years old. Nowadays, the Andes crossing is a rather common thing for experienced sailplane cross-country pilots with many planned routes. But Williamson will always be remembered as the first person ever to challenge the Andes without an engine. In central Nevada by myself, and it was a good day in trying to do a 1000K triangle. Uh, but near Winnemucca, I hadn't been making good progress. But then I see these, and it's forecast to have isolated thunderstorms, which for those of you who fly in central Nevada is actually the ideal forecast. Just enough to have, you know, some towering queue, maybe a little overdevelopment, but, you know, not these Kansas-sized, you know, 50-mile-wide thunderstorms. But the lift rates can still be quite impressive. So I'm, I see this one particular cloud ahead for it, and sure enough, you know, start getting a good climb. And as I'm getting towards the base, I start heading towards the edge, and I happen to hit, through later uh, analysis of the flight log, a 30-knot Updraft. So whoop, I still distinctly remember looking that the scene of looking out, it, just like in an airliner, you know, when an airliner goes up and you go through the clouds, it appears to be far away and all of a sudden, boom, you're in the cloud. And for the next two and a half minutes, I'm in the cloud. And if you read any of the AOPA or watch any of the videos, it's kind of like, well, you know, after about two and a half minutes, that's typically when people get into the spiral dive and they pull the wings off and they die. You know, so I'm, I'm going through my head going, okay, I have no artificial horizon. And basically this article from when I was a teenager came back into my head and it's, you know, you're only going to be turning left or right. So push one way or the other. And you can tell by the G forces, whether or not you pick the right way to, to be turning less. And so I did that and I basically, you know, could feel that less G's I pull up. And then when I slow down enough, I throw out the gear and the, the flaps and the dive brakes and fall back into another spiral dive. But this time, just hoping I can you know, come out the bottom of the cloud. But of course, I'm still in the thermal. So I think my net descent rate was like 300 feet per minute or something like that. Mm. Anyway, I eventually came out the bottom and uh, then stow everything, fly another four hours back to Tonopah land, spend the night, uh, come back the next day uh, to back to the house and then tell my wife about the incident. Hi everyone, Sergio from Soaring Master here, wishing you health, lots of flight hours and happiness in this new year ahead. May this new year bring you new badges, new personal marks and exciting flights. Happy New Year!
Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America, and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. And this was, uh, I think it was in 99 uh, at the Uvalde Standard Class Nationals. I was out there playing my discus at the time. It was supposed to be a really booming day, and it was what they called a post test, pilot option speed test. So you had all these turn points scattered everywhere, and you, 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 if you could pick out the right, the strongest part of the sky to to set up a circuit, you know, you could really, you know, rip around and turn in some really high speeds. And so um, I had heard this story uh, of when uh, Klaus Holigaus. Uh, came out in way back in 1984 with the very first discus, and he he flew a contest at Uvalde, and he went and flew over the uh, the river there, um, the Rio Grande, I can I guess maybe, and he had this uh, anyway. He found this one area of the sky out by the river uh, that he could run back and forth in this long cloud street, and uh, he did that back and forth for a couple hours, and came back and turned in a speed that was ten miles an hour faster than everybody else, and just cleaned everyone's clocks. And the discus, uh, the first and only discus ever to enter the United States, and won the standard class nationals so, uh, with uh, Klaus Holigans at the helm. Well, I remembered that story, and I headed out to that stretch of river. <laughs> it's on the border border with Mexico, and it was uh, I don't know. Uh, I remember it being like maybe 40 miles from Uvalde. I mean, you could check a map and, uh, and figure, figure out how far it was away, maybe even more than that. But I got out there and uh, hoping to find myself uh, a, a really blazing street that I could, I could, uh, I could rip around. And, and by then they had changed the rules. You couldn't just go yo-yo back and forth between two points. You had to add a third point. So it had to be a triangle kind of a thing. Uh, okay. But I I could maybe do that. And anyway, long story, a little bit shorter, uh, didn't happen, but nonetheless, I did end up way away from Uvalde as the day was starting to, you know, uh, to weaken. And so I figured, well, I better get home. And so I had this, uh, and cloud bases were super high. I swear they were 14 or 15,000 feet, um, cloud bases there. And so I sat on the, on this final glide back to Uvalde and everything had kind of turned blue and soft and there was nothing happening on my Vario. And I had like a 45 minute, you know, final glide back and I was watching my computer and it was telling me, Oh, you're 50 feet. And I had the McCready set to zero. So basically I was best L over D a long way from the airport and just barely had glide made. Every once in a while my computer would say, Oh, you're 50 feet over glide slope. Oh, you're 50 feet under 50 feet over 50 feet under all for like for a half an hour wow. <laughs> as I'm trying to uh, get back to the airport. And during this time, uh, you know, you got a devil, a little devil on one shoulder, a little angel on the other shoulder and the devil's going, yeah, you gotta, you gotta go for it. You know, <laughs> you gotta go for it. You're going to, you'll find a bump, you know, you'll find a bump. You can make a couple turns. You got it. You can always dive into ground effect and squeak onto the runway. And, uh, and then the, you know, maybe that's the devil, right? And then the angel is just telling you, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Because at Uvalde, it's uh, it's pretty hostile terrain. You can't. It's not like Minnesota where you find a little farm field or something, right. and you uh, 
and you put it down there, it's pretty nasty uh, scrub and, and rocks and fences and junk. I almost I almost went for it, and I got to the point where there was one little airport I could just make. It was actually a hunting lodge, but they had a little gra- a little dirt strip there. I was really torn. I almost, uh, you know, I almost went for it, and then finally I, I, I chickened out and uh, turned and and just barely made it to this little this dirt strip at this this hunting lodge or whatever, and and landed there. And it was another one of those cases where, and when I thought back at it, I never would I never would have made it, you know. And for anybody who's done cross country or especially contests or record flying or or even flying locally, and you and you can just barely make it home and you, you know, you not even enough to do a pattern. You just kind of try to, you know, do a, a kind of a straight in a, a rolling finish onto the runway, which I, I do not recommend at all, but it doesn't take much uh, for that whole plan to fall apart. And then you've basically thrown away all of you. There's no plan B, right? You are, you're too low. You can't see, you, you can't see any other place to go, let alone you don't have the altitude to go there. One day I was flying an old uh, light glider during a contest, and I got a really strong thermal. And then, you know, the thermal started to be even stronger. And it flipped my glider. I, I had no controls. So in a couple of seconds, there I was, you know, spinning upside down with a wooden-made glider from the 70s. Well, thanks to aerobatics, I, I, I quickly stopped the spin and I rejoined the thermal immediately. So that, that entire episode took me no more than a couple of minutes from my performance in that competition day. And in terms, in terms of safety, you know, it was totally uneventful. Again, thanks to aerobatics. So th- that's why I, I strongly recommend for anyone, for pleasure or for uh, uh, for a competition, you know, people to, to get involved in aerobatics. Our longtime sponsor of the show, the Soaring Academy, is engaged in nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also with young people for the STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility just outside of Los Angeles, nestled near the north side of the San Gabriel Mountains. They also have a fantastic flight school and are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, go to soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. It was uh, one of my first cross countries in the wave. Uh, I every autumn I uh, go to a long wave uh, gliding camp in Kronov uh, in the uh, after uh, behind uh, Yeseniki Mountains, and it was as I said, one of my first cross countries and I was without oxygen or I uh, had a um, f- uh, oxygen bomb which was almost empty when I started, but the weather was so good and so complicated also. It wasn't, it was very uh, moisture that day. Uh, there were many clouds in the air, so we have to fly very high, higher than I wanted and uh, after a few hours, uh, the oxygen went out and uh, it wasn't enough of it in the air. And I wasn't feeling that well. Well, sometimes I was feeling too too well. Uh, it's uh, Sometimes you are too happy when you have uh, not enough oxygen. But uh, other friends on uh, frequency 
realized that something is wrong with me and they said it's it's the beginning of uh, low oxygen, you know. Uh, and then, of course, uh, I had a headache and I wasn't feeling well uh, on ground. And, and then that day I decided that I will not fly without oxygen never again in the wave. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez. 